It's changing of the guard time here in the apprenticeship program, when one group of apprentices graduates and another moves up to take their place as the creative force behind Full Circle. This Friday, we'll take a look back at the Via Lobos era, their best work, what they learned in the program, and what I'm most looking forward to, the bloopers collage. Via Lobos, Village Wolves, we salute you. Thank you, Leali, Lavinia, Mia, Gil, Dara, Tai, Idris, Sema, and Felicia. Join us in sending Via Lobos out into the big wide world on Full Circle this Friday at 7 p.m. You're listening to KPFA 94.1 in Berkeley, KPFB 89.3 in Berkeley, KFCF 88.1 in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. Up next, Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Independence Day. The Festival of Freedom, right, July 4th, 2006. I'm just thrilled to be here live on the air today because I'm going to gossip. I want to give you my spin on the mothers and fathers of our nation, and in particular, Tom and Sally. I want to talk about uh, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemmings. Uh, parents of the nation, the mother and father of us all. Uh, yes, indeed, folks, we used to call it the great lie, the social lie, the political lie, the sexual lie, if you like. Um, I listened to Eartha Kitt the other night talking about a trip down south. We see her traveling through a graveyard talking about her family, her white father, that sort of thing. Uh, if you get a chance to see that biography of Eartha Kitt, it will tell you what the world is like now, how this has come down to us, this, this heritage of denial. Uh, actually, I saw uh, the mother of the nation in her 21st century incarnation just a few minutes ago, coming down here on the bus. She was driving the AC Transit bus. She was a beautiful young African-American young woman. She was talking to her daughter on a cell phone, and she said, she said, now I'm not going to hang up till you stop crying. I asked her if she get over to, she gets the overtime, and she said, you bet. I gave her a flower to put in her hair. I gave her one white flower and one black flower. Artificial, unfortunately. Ah, yes. In any case, enough of the silly symbolism. <laughs> a friend of mine the other day called me a post-symbolist. I wonder what that means. Anyway, there is no couple more all-American than Tom and Sally. They personify um, our colonial history. They're all about us. Now... Who's to say what the relationship was all about? Uh, there's obviously exploitation, misogyny, um, tremendous paternalism. Ah, uh, yes, or perhaps there was um, 
some romance connected with it, at least in Paris in the beginning. Uh, uh, if you think that a 45-year-old um, male and a 15-year-old female uh, can have a, a loving relationship, uh, it was not uncommon at the time, of course, but it had all the oppressions rolled into one, but what is it Tony Morrison says? Yes, uh, a whore can be a lover, a mammy, yes, can be a mother. She goes on at great length about that in her book, Sula. Personally, I've been fascinated with this story for years, ever since uh, it came out. Oh, there was a novel that my uh, students loved. Uh, it was called Sally Hemings. Uh, by Barbara Chase Ribot, R-I-B-O-U-D, last name, Chase hyphen Ribot, C-H-A-S-E dash R-I-B-O-U-D. Uh, and of course the, uh, the biographies, uh, everywhere, uh, now, when Thomas Jefferson expressed his highest political and philosophical ideals by writing the Declaration of Independence, you know, with the help of Ben Franklin and Thomas Paine and half of Europe's free thinkers. He was setting forth his hopes, his dreams for a just world, but let's face it, Tom was a pragmatist in practice. He wrote, uh, you remember in the Declaration of Independence, he wrote the bit about the abolition of slavery in the colonies, but... He knew the boys would edit it out. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's see what Abigail Adams said about that. Where's Abigail? Uh, she said, uh, here it is, Abigail. She said, in 1776, uh, the wife of, of uh, John Adams, Abigail Adams, wrote, I cannot feel but sorry that some of the most manly sentiments in the Declaration are expunged from the printed copy. Perhaps wise reasons induce it. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, let's see. Here's Thomas Jefferson in 1790, Notes on the State of Virginia. This is Tom himself writing... Uh, he wrote, the whole commerce between master and slave is a perpetual exercise of the most boisterous passions, the most unremitting despotism on the one part, and degrading submissions on the other. Our children see this, and learn to imitate it, for man is an imitative animal. This quality is the germ of all education in him. From his cradle to his grave, he is learning to do what he sees others do. If a parent could find no motive, either in his philanthropy or his self-love, for restraining the intemperance of passion towards his slave, it should always be a sufficient one that his child is present. Once again, this is Thomas Jefferson speaking, uh, writing in 1790, Notes on the State of Virginia. Now, uh, somehow in his mind he managed to rationalize his uh, uh, 37 or 38 year liaison with Sally Hemings um, 
as a form of paternalism, when he uses the word passion, we assume he means anger, intemperance, you know. He felt that he was protecting her, taking care of her, something like that. Uh, at least that's the conventional wisdom. Uh-huh. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of stuff here about uh, what Thomas Jefferson believed race mixing was all about, but I'm going to spare you that. He obviously um, was a man of his time. Uh, <laughs> now, actually, uh, the Declaration of Independence has been talked about on almost every radio station for the last two days. And all I'm hearing is whether or not they spelled it correctly or the day they signed it on or the fact that uh, Tom Jefferson and John Adams both died on the 4th of July in uh, 1826, that sort of thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't want to call him a hypocrite any more than I am quick to condemn those people today who see the suffering of their fellow men and just go out and have a $4 latte or a $40 meal in a posh restaurant. I mean, obviously... Um, we all of us rationalize our behavior, our privileges. We tell ourselves that the problem is too vast for one person. And Tom, you know, he liked his wine. He liked a life of luxury. Uh, as a matter of fact, <laughs> he lived very high on the hog. Uh, and he was, of course, one of the better slave masters, as uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote uh, you know, you can have a kind slave master or uh, a malevolent one. It is the system that is wrong. It is uh, slavery itself, uh, the laws. Anyway, Tom rationalized his position. He thought of himself, I'm sure, as a benign master. Never mind that he let little boys work 16-hour days making nails, that sort of thing. Uh, he was crazy about building. He never stopped renovating Monticello. A benevolent tyrant, uh, like an ancient Roman, he considered his slaves his family. Uh, let's see what Marx has to say about that. Uh, yes, indeed, here is my favorite passage from... Oh, it's Engels, Frederick Engels, The Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State, 1884. <laughs> Engels writes, familia, F-A-M-I-L-I-A, that's family, familia, the Roman word, did not originally signify the composite ideal of sentimentality and domestic strife. In the present-day Philistine mind, among the Romans, it did not even apply in the beginning to the leading couple and its children, but to the slaves alone. Uh, Famulus, F-A-M-U-L-U-S, means domestic slave, and familia is the aggregate number of slaves belonging to one man, that is, one Roman citizen. The expression familia was invented by the Romans in order to designate a new social organism, the head of which had a wife, children, and a number of slaves under his paternal authority and, according to Roman law, the right of life and death over all of them. Once again, that's Frederick Engels' Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State. Uh, 
One more quotation here before I get back to Tom and Sally. This is from Mary Boykin Chestnut. Uh, she was a southern, uh, white ruling class lady, a friend of, uh, uh, Jefferson Davis in a later age. Uh, yes, her diary. Diary from Dixie, 1840 to 1876. Um, she writes, God forgive us, but ours is a monstrous system, a wrong and an inequity. Like the patriarchs of old, our men live all in one house with their wives and concubines. The mulattoes one sees in every family partly resemble the white children. Any lady is ready to tell you who is the father of all the mulatto children in everybody's household but her own. Those, she seems to think, drop from the sky. Yes, indeed. Invisible. Uh, denial, denial. Uh, so many fascinating things in this story. Here is Dolly Madison in 1837. This is quite a time after Jefferson's death, she writes. The southern white woman is the chief slave of the master's harem. Yes, imagine what uh, her state of mind must have been. Uh, I think of Jefferson's oldest daughter, <laughs> played by Gwyneth Paltrow in the movie Jefferson in Paris. Let's see now. Uh, in any case... Uh, that Roman word familia has fascinated me. Uh, Hazel Henderson uses it uh, a lot. She's the one who writes about nuclear war. This paternalism that Jefferson practiced extended to the women in his life. Uh, uh, he had some attrition with his mother. He burned all of her letters and possessions as he burned the letters, possessions, and uh journals, everything belonging to his wife when she died. Uh, that's Martha Wales. Uh, now, today, I want to recommend a few books on Jefferson because it's a vast subject, and I always get notes from people who disagree with me on this or that uh, part of the story. Uh, there's a whole lot of perspectives and viewpoints uh there's a new book by Christopher Hitchens, but I haven't finished that one, so I'm going to skip over that. Most history buffs will have read Fawn Brody's biography. That dates from 1974. That's Fawn, F-A-W-N, Brody, B-R-O-D-I-E. That's the one that uh, we read in the 70s that revealed the extent of the relationship with Sally Hemings. Uh, now, those people who like their history wrapped up in novels, in fiction, might enjoy the spin on Sally Hemings' life that Barbara Chase Ribot wrote. Now, once again, that novel is titled Sally Hemings. Uh, it was first published in 1979. Uh, the author wrote another book called The President's Daughter about Harriet, one of S Sally's daughter. Uh, she left home with $50 when she was 21, right? Anyway, uh, the author likes to let her fantasy uh, play over these uh, tales. The thing is that she, she uses the actual letters. It's really, uh, let's call it a docudrama. 
published 1979, and there are innumerable movies and TV series attempting to present the story. Uh, once again, much controversy, and th- there isn't enough known about Sally to be able to definitively understand uh, just exactly how she felt about all this. Uh, I enjoyed Jefferson in Paris, a Merchant Ivory movie, uh, Thandy Newton plays Sally, Nick Nolte plays Jefferson. Uh, that particular movie gives equal time to Jefferson's romance with Maria Causeway, an aristocrat, a painter, married to one of England's most successful artists. She's an Italian-English character. Uh, they wrote to each other, I believe, for the rest of their lives after he uh, returned to the United States from Paris. Uh, she went off to teach in a girls' school. Now, that particular movie deals only with the beginning of the affair, the years Jefferson spent in Paris, uh, away from his home. Uh, the definitive study of Sally Hemings and her lifelong relationship with President Jefferson is set forth in an exhaustive historical study by a Washington lawyer. Now, this is the one I recommend. I'm sure it's in the library. Uh, she's a young African-American named Annette Gordon-Reed. The title of that book is Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, An American Controversy. Once again, the author's last name is Gordon-Reed, G-O-R-D-O-N-Reed, R-E-E-D. Uh, now, Christopher Hitchens... <laughs> applauds this woman's scholarship. Uh, uh, He talks at length about her spin on this, uh, noting, of course, that uh, it was written, it was just published before the DNA evidence was out, and uh, said if you needed uh, any additional evidence, it could be found in Annette Gordon-Reed's book. Uh, Christopher Hitchens was on C-SPAN this week. He added his own comment that, when Tom saw Sally arriving from America, she having matured in the years since Jefferson left Monticello, his reaction must have been that there is a God after all. He said, of course, we know Jefferson was something of a secularist. Actually, Jefferson was a deist. Uh, that's a little bit different. It's complicated, but, uh, you know, uh, he was willing to, you know, uh, leave God alone. Now, Jefferson did not ask that Sally accompany his little daughter. There was no uh, lecherous motive. Uh, His little eight-year-old Polly was sent to him in Paris because uh, another one of his daughters had died back in uh, the United United States. And uh, uh, they meant to send an older slave with little Polly, but... That slave became pregnant, and Sally was a last-moment substitute. In some of the stories, we read that Sally's mother, Elizabeth, um, another woman who had uh, lived her life as the, uh, what is it, Uh, let's say concubine of a white slave master, that Sally's mother had a hand in this. Now, whether uh, some people seem to think she might have believed that Sally uh, could... um, claim her freedom in Paris. Other people believe that Elizabeth had no idea what the laws in France were. Perhaps she sent Sally 
uh, knowing that uh, uh, Jefferson would find her uh, a dead ringer for his dead wife. Uh, Jefferson had no knowledge that she was coming, and of course, uh, she had been at Monticello, uh, I think since, yes, since John Wales died, that is, uh, Jefferson's father-in-law. He sent all of his slaves to his daughter's uh, home at Monticello. Uh, Sally would have been 14. Abigail Adams thought she was 16, 15 or 16. Abigail Adams met the two girls on their arrival in London, and she was alarmed. Uh, Seems Sally may have been a bit of a flirt. The girls had been on the ship for weeks and running around, and uh, Abigail writes to Jefferson that Sally is, if anything, uh, <laughs> more undisciplined than Polly. Uh, here's a quote. She's quite a child, Abigail writes. The ship captain thinks he might as well carry her back to Virginia with him uh, because she is, quote, of so little service. Well, now, uh, known at Monticello as Dashing Sally, I have a list here of quotes from all these biographies. Uh, many, many sources describing Sally's good looks, her, well, light skin, long, straight hair. Uh, apparently, there are... Uh, Several indications that she could pass for white while she was in France, uh, or she did. For Jefferson, of course, Sally must have been a revelation because uh, she was his dead wife's half-sister. And so she was his sister-in-law. Both Sally's mother and grandmother uh, had been the concubines of the white slave owners. She was uh, what was then called a quadroon. Those were the terms they used, mulatto, quadroon, octroon. Nowadays, we know that race is not a biological reality. As Toni Morrison points out, uh, color is a uh, metaphor. It's a vast confusion for most people. Uh, what it meant in the 18th century was a legal class divide. It was so severe that it continues to plague us today. Slave or free meant legal or illegal. Jefferson's legal wife died. His eldest daughter, Polly, uh, Polly, no, pardon me, Patsy. Polly was the next child, Polly or Maria. Uh, Patsy had 12 children. She married, oh, yes, <laughs> Randolph Jefferson. Actually, I kind of liked him. He tried to get a, a bill outlawing slavery through the Virginia um, legislature, but... Turned out he was an alcoholic and uh, let her down. Anyway, uh, the eldest daughter, Patsy, uh, those children were contemporary with Sally's children. Sally had apparently, as far as I can figure out, eight pregnancies, uh, six living children, four living to grow up and move away, but the last two sons were still with her when she died. Sally arrived in Paris. Uh, let's see, 1787. She was said to have been uh, in the room at Monticello when Jefferson's wife died, and he had promised his wife on her deathbed never to marry again, never to set a stepmother over the surviving daughters. 
The one legal son of Jefferson died when it was when he was three weeks old. Now, if Sally heard this deathbed promise, it may figure in their story. Uh, she would have been only about ten years old. In any case, there could have been no legal marriage uh, between Tom and Sally in Virginia. Uh, certainly no evidence that Jefferson ever thought of making their attachment legal. For those with any imagination, it will be obvious that they were simply traditional folks. That is, that the dominant submission paradigm was the order of the day. From Sally's point of view, Jefferson must have seemed like the best bet uh, in a world where the fate of women pretty much depended upon the males with whom they found favor. There is a story that uh, Sally Hemings cared for Jefferson's grave for the nine years she lived on after his death. He died 1826, Sally in 1835. She was 62. <laughs> after Tom died, Monticello was sold for debt. Uh, Jefferson was bankrupt. <laughs> Actually, uh, as I said, he, he was a bit of a hedonist. Uh, Brought back, what was it, 80 cases of wine from France? Anyway, uh, he lived in comparative luxury. And when he died, Sally and her two younger sons went to live in a house they rented in Charlottesville. Uh, freed slaves could not own property in Virginia at that time. Both the sons, Eston and Madison, married and eventually became property owners, uh, uh, let's see. Their relationship to Monticello was not severed. Um, they were property owners because they were designated white. All Sally's children were freed, either at age 21 or thereabouts. Uh, Tom never freed any of his other slaves. Most were sold by his daughter to pay his debts. Now, the biography that uh, Fawn Brody wrote, calls this the final irony. Oh, goodness, yes. I don't see it that way. Anyway, she says the final irony, yes, is that Sally and her sons were listed as white by the 1830 census. Now, who knows how that came about. Um, needs a better scholar to figure that one. Uh, it may have been that there, there was a bill in the legislature, something to do with Sally and her sons. Anyway, Tom and Sally's descendants and the so-called legal descendants of Tom and Martha have had some trouble connecting over the years, the 200 and more years uh, since uh, that time. Apparently, this is working itself out, although there's plenty of brouhaha. There have been many television specials, according to Christopher Hitchens. The grave of Sally Hemings, the symbolic mother of her country, is located beneath a parking lot of the Hampton Inn. That must be in Charlottesville. What a scandal. The revisionists are marching. Surely there will be a new grave, maybe even a statue. Not that Sally and Tom care. Tom had the brains to keep his mouth shut. The scandal mongers... Mongers hung him out to dry when he ran for president. The press called her Dusky Sally, even called her an African Venus. One journalist uh, who had made an enemy of Thomas Jefferson turned up dead in, uh, 
in a lake, yes. He drowned in three feet of water, oops, while he was a scoundrel with scores of enemies. It does make one wonder. I like to imagine that was Tom Callender, in case you're interested. Uh, he was the one who said the unkind things about Tom and Sally. Uh, now, I like to imagine that Tom and Sally did the best with what life offered them. Must have been especially difficult, though, for her. The lives of women in the 18th century <laughs> were pretty grim. Slave or free, at one point, Sally had to nurse the children of Jefferson's daughter, uh, Patsy or Martha. That strikes me as harsh. Um, there are also some descriptions, some of them imaginary, and some of them possibly real, of her taking care of Polly or Maria in her last uh, last days. I think she was 26, died of breast cancer. Struck me as harsh that uh, she might have had to give up, yes, her own baby's milk. We don't know. We just don't know. Still, you see, like her mother before her, Betty Elizabeth. Yes, that was Sally's mother. Sally made a place for herself. Uh, her mother, Betty, lived to be very old, and uh, she had the keys to Monticello. She was uh, a housekeeper for Thomas Jefferson and a heavy-duty presence. Sally seems to have done a lot of sewing. She took care of Jefferson's bedroom and wardrobe. <laughs> I think maybe I will take the time next time to tell you more of this wonderful story. Uh, my favorite line is a scholar at the University of Virginia who shakes his head and says, There are such things as moral impossibilities. Now, what do you think of that? This has been... Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw and I'll be back